As you read through the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, nothing, nothing could prepare you for what you encounter starting in chapter 5. If you were here last week, you know that we've begun, chapters 5 through 7 are called the arc narrative. Samuel, who the story's been about so far, has kind of faded into the background. And then 5 through 7 focuses on the arc. I've titled today's sermon, The Lost Ark. <laughs> and in this arc narrative, it, it's incredible. You're at the, you're at, think about it. You're at the darkest moment of Israelite history. The, uh, the ark has been captured. This uh, poor woman has given birth to this child, and she names him Ichabod. Glory gone, glory departed. The ark of God has been captured. And so chapters 5 through 7 are not at all what you would expect. They are, it's hard to know what to do with them. They are at the same time, I mean, bizarre. Uh, What we'll see today, they're strange. But also, there's no other way to say it, they're funny, like there's some funny, there's some humor in these chapters, but it is didactic humor. It's humor that has a point that teaches. And so you've got this strange story and this funny story, and that's what makes it all the more bizarre that it ends with this shocking ending. And so I'm studying this thing, and how are we going to tie all this together? What is the thread that's going to kind of tie the arc narrative together? What do you do with this? And I thought, I'll just skip it, and I'll go to chapter 8. And I thought, no, 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 it doesn't seem very courageous. <laughs> the way I thought to tie it together, it turns out, is right there in the text over and over again. And it's a question. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lay out the controlling question that I think, th- this is what God wants us to see in this passage of Scripture. And it's the answer to this question. Who? Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Now, that's actually in the text today. That's, that's straight out of chapter 6, verse 20. We're going to start in verse 5, but that's the question. Let's get our heads around that. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? That is our question for today, and I hope you'll see it is incredibly relevant. All right, let's get right to it. After the events of last week's text, as I said, the ark's been captured, and you can imagine the Philistines, they're celebrating, we have captured Yahweh. It's over for the Israelites. It's over for Yahweh. Certainly, if you capture the Israelite God, if uh, some God, right, he allows himself to be captured, they've taken his ark, which they think represents him, clearly this is evidence you have fully defeated your enemy. So the Philistines celebrate. Look at chapter five, verse one. They do what any pagan group of uh, polytheists would do. 1 Samuel 5.1, when the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Remember, Ashdod was one of their five cities. The Philistines arranged their government by having five cities. Ashdod had this temple to Dagon. Verse 2, then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon. Can you imagine what blasphemy? Dagon's temple. They bring it into the house of Dagon, and watch this, and set it up beside Dagon. Now that's supposed to make you sick to your stomach. For thousands of years when the Israelites read this, it just made them sick to think, here you've got Yahweh, the ark of God, that goes eventually, by the way, in the Holy of Holies. Remember the the the. The place that the the high priest could only go once a year and even then had to sprinkle the ark with the blood and cover it with sacrifice, the reverence and the holiness. And here you've got it in a pagan temple. And note that beside Dagon. Beside Dagon. Literally the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods besides me. Total blasphemy 
right there, rubbing it in everybody's face. And, and why? Why beside Dagon? Do you ever wonder if the Philistines captured the Yahweh's art, why didn't they just destroy it? Because they were polytheists. Remember, they absolutely believed in Yahweh. They believed in Yahweh. They just knew, that, or they, they thought they knew that Yahweh was just one God among many. See, they had no problem with the Israelite God. They figured there's all sorts of gods out there. It just so happens that our God works and your God doesn't. See, it's not about God is, it's not about what's true for the pagan. It's about what works. And it seems that Dagon can deliver the goods and Yahweh can't. Can I tell you how incredibly modern paganism is? Does this not sound familiar? It doesn't so matter who's right or who's wrong. It's just have you found what works for you? That's literally paganism. Not the holiness of God, not what's true, it's what works. I'm so glad you found something that works for you. I found what works for me. They have no, a pagan has no problem with the true and living God as long as the true and living God will set himself up next to all the other gods. See, I got no problem with you as a Christian. This is no problem. The secular world has no problem with you saying you believe in God as long as your God will stay in his place beside the other gods. The problem comes when you say, no, our God is the only true and living God. And there is no other God. All the gods are just idols. Then you have a problem. Isn't that something? Isn't that incredibly modern? Nobody has a problem with Yahweh as long as, you know, he, uh, as long as he sits behind the Philistine God and stays quiet. Could there be a lower point than this in Israelite history so far? Ichabod, ark captured priests are all dead. Samuel's somewhere, I guess, but we haven't heard from the Lord from Samuel here in, in this chapter. The people are guilty. They've got no one to blame but themselves. And now it seems as if God himself has been defeated. Utter humiliation to be set up in Dagon's temple. There's a few times in the Old Testament where things get so dark, you wonder, will Israel even survive as a people? Will the story of God even go on? Well, they must, have, they must have had quite a buzz there in Ashdod because they're all planning the next morning to come by. I imagine the word gets out, uh, uh, come, by the t- come by Dagon's temple tomorrow for an open house. We're going to have a special display. We're going to display our new trophy. So yes, everyone meet here at 8 a.m. and we're going to have this big open house and you're all going to get to lay your eyes on this Yahweh. Who's, think about it. The Israelites have been fighting for all these years. Now it's over. We've got the trophy. We've got their God safe in our temple. So everyone come by. But of course, watch what happens to everyone's surprise. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. <laughs> Can you imagine the embarrassment of the temple officials? I'm so sorry for the delay, folks. It seems Dagon has had a rough night. Now, if that's funny, it's because it's supposed to be funny. This is holy, for years, thousands of years, this was told in the dark of night when it feels like Israel has no hope. The Israelites howled with laughter at the thought of this Dagon bowing before Yahweh. And with the next, the next line, maybe one of the most savage shots at idolatry in the entire Bible. Here, the writer of 1 Samuel dips his pen into the acid ink of sarcasm and writes, so they took Dagon and put him back in his place. (laughs) It's glorious. 
It's satire to make you stop and think, what kind of quote-unquote God do you have if you have to help him back in his place? He can't get up and go back to his own place, but you can help him back. One night with Yahweh makes the day gone humble. Before you mock the ridiculousness of this, of course, ridiculous, ludicrous, to worship a God that you had to put in its place. Oh, careful now. Before we say that's ridiculous, that you would worship a God that you have to carry, whoo, ask yourself, can't, if we're not careful, can't we make a savior out of almost anything? Haven't we done that? Over time, haven't we learned that if you make anything other than the Lord God your idol, you make anything other than the Lord God your God, you'll have to carry that idol, won't you? If you seek security and you seek salvation in money, if that's your chief concern, you'll have to labor over it. You'll have to care it. You'll constantly have to rebalance that portfolio and find that next investment. You'll have to sweat it every night. You're carrying your God. Make success at work your idol, and you'll always have to be watching your back. You'll always have to be climbing that next hill. You can never rest for a second. You got to carry that idol. Make comfort your idol, and there's always another uh, TV to buy, and always another trip to take, and always a bigger uh, area, a bigger house, and a bigger, better cushions, or whatever, right? You've always got to carry it. Christians, no need for idolatry. Why? You don't need a God you can carry. Isaiah tells us if there's any caring to be done, make God your God, and He carries you. You see the difference? You don't want a God you have to carry around. You want a God who carries you, the true and living God. Well, after this first night, surely the priests of Dagon were probably thinking, oh, if I get my hands on those Philistine teenagers, right? I mean, just, just vandalism, right? That's all this was. Some punk snuck in here, you know, these Philistines. <laughs> it's, it's ironic because they were Philistines. Anyway, um, <laughs> just thought of that. Um, so, so no problem, just one night, probably just vandalism. Well, so let's try it again the next day. But when they rose early, so they've got Dagon set back up. All that's done. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Security rushes in on the radio. We've got a Humpty Dumpty situation. He's fallen, and he can't get up. No one would miss the obvious message here. The head is the place of wisdom. The hands were the signs of power. I love that when commentators say what any kid can see from a mile away. The commentators are like, now the head would have been the place of wisdom, showing it's foolish to trust in idols. And the hands would be, the arms would be power, showing Dagon has no power. I'm like, my kids would read that and go, yeah, it's a smashed on the ground. Thanks for the commentary. We don't need it. You can see obviously. No one would miss the obvious message. The amazing thing would be at that point, at that point, wouldn't you stop and repent? (laughs) Wouldn't you say this is a clear message? In a way, this is a word of judgment on the Philistines, but in a way, it's great mercy. God is saying, look, I know you guys don't have a prophet here. I know you don't have the scriptures. Let me make this as obvious as I can. Trust in Yahweh, the true and living God. All the other gods end up smashed on the ground in pieces. What else does God have to do? Do you think God was, do you think he loved the Philistines? Of course, he's getting a message to them. 
And amazingly, instead of stopping repenting and hearing the messages, look at what verse 5 says. The priests just forever work around it, and they build it into their superstition. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. It became part of their lore that, yeah, well, we have to walk around that. because It's crazy, but it's not, because if you think about all the justification people will make, about God to fit the lifestyle they want to live. Let me just say, I think the reason they didn't stop and repent was because getting right with Yahweh God meant they had to do away a lot with a lot of how they were living. And deep down, they chose, <laughs> they chose just to keep on living as they were living instead of the truth of God. Now, just a couple things to point out from this delightful first five verses, and we have to move on. Uh, but first, in, in, in the dark of night, in the dead center of a demonic, satanic pagan temple I always wonder and I don't know but what was said by Yahweh what was done in the dead of night no human got to see inside Dagon's temple that night but what was done such that you got idols falling down and smashing themselves we have no idea we can assume that the powers of darkness would have rejoiced at the thought of the defeat of God, only to learn God fights his own battles, and God doesn't do one among many. God is supremely monotheistic. I also think this is foreshadowing, isn't it? Can you think of another dreadful night when the powers of darkness would have rejoiced? My mind goes to that dreadful Good Friday, there in the tomb where the cold, dead body of Jesus, Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, one with God the Father in the dark of night. Can we not assume that the demons howled with delight at the war they thought they had won? Ever since Adam and Eve, they'd had the sting of death, and that old sting of death had never failed them once. They could hardly contain their delight. Here's Jesus in the tomb with no one to help him. Lazarus was in the tomb, but he had Jesus on the outside. Now, Jesus himself has faced the sting of death, and no one can help him. But there, in the dark, what was said? What happened? We don't know. No human got to know. He, it, 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 you know, in, in the creed, he descended into hell, and there's some scriptures, and then silent Saturday. We don't know, but we know early Easter Sunday morning, we learn that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess of things on the earth and under the earth and above the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You can't help but look at Dagon smashed before Yahweh and think about Philippians 2. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess. Jesus Christ is Lord. And so let me apply that to you today. 2,000 years for everybody who thinks they're in a place where all hope is gone. And there's nothing but darkness in your life. I want you to look at this story. Look at that tomb on Good Friday and think, right now in all the darkness in your life, you can't see it. But what if Yahweh is speaking a word in that darkness that makes these demons crumble and fall? Your hope is not in yourself. But your hope is in God. And God, he can fight his own battles. Well, the answer to the first question is obvious. The, uh, sorry, the first answer to our controlling question is obvious. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? <laughs> Not idols. <laughs> you knew that, but I, I think it, the text leads us to say, not idols, don't trust in idols. Dagon, ask Dagon if he could stand before Yahweh. Clearly not. Well, the people might be convinced that God is, maybe God is behind all this, but maybe not. Maybe it's vandalism or maybe it's coincidence. 
So God leaves no doubt. Look at what happens next. Verse 6. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he was terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. So this plague went out, and the next chapter mentions mice. So that leads some scholars to think it was bubonic plague. Some people think it was a plague. We don't know what to do with the word tumors. Those of you who use the King James, the word is hemorrhoids. I just leave that. I move on. Uh, You know, either way, God got their attention in Ashdod. And remember, the Philistines divided their government into five cities. So the men of Ashdod saw how things were, and they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us. This thing's too hot to handle, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they get their government leaders together in Ashdod, and they have a session of Congress. And they say, what are we going to do with the ark of God? He's already smashed our idol, and now we, we didn't learn from that. And so now our people have tumors, and we're afflicted with this great plague. So they get their government leaders, verse 8. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? You see, there's that question again. Who can stand before the holiness of God? And they, came up, they come up with exactly the This is great. This is politics. It hadn't changed in 3,000 years. They come up with exactly the perfect political answer you would expect even today. They answered, verse 8, let the ark of God of Israel be brought around to uh, Gath. <laughs> Pass the buck. <laughs> so they brought the ark of the God of Israel there, presumably uh, the lords of Ashdod didn't have any relatives in Gath. <laughs> so you got to wonder how they sold this to the city council at Gath. Oh, it's, it's great. It's a, it's a traveling exhibit. Pay no attention to these tumors. Uh, that is a coincidence, and you're going to love it. It's going to be great. <laughs> but after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against that city, Gath, right, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. At this point, you want to go, guys, repent, throw Dagon out and say, you know what? The true and living God might be trying to tell us something, but they don't. And of course, every time we laugh at the utter foolishness of this, we have to look in the mirror and go, what does God have to do to get my attention? So what do they do? It doesn't work in Ashdod. Let's pass the buck to Gath. We don't want to let go of our captured God, but we, we can't handle him here. So what does Gath do? Verse 10. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. <laughs> I love this uh, because apparently gossip moves faster than the government. Even before social media, the Ekron City Council stops them at the interstate exit off-ramp. and said, But as soon as the Ark of the God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, No, no, no. They have brought around to us the Ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. Oh, no, you don't. So they said, look, just send this thing back where it came from. So they sent Therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel. Let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. You still see that, right? They're still saying all the power is in the it. They're still utterly superstitious, right? It, 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 the, the powers, in, if, if we get rid of this talisman, somehow we've offended Yahweh, I guess. So if we get rid of it, it's what's killing us, this idol. They still don't get it. There was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was heavy there. Again, I, it says the, hand, the heavy hand of God, but that's what Psalm 32 says. When I kept silent, you're, it's, it, I felt your hand was heavy upon me. It, it's not, it, yes, it's judgment, but you see the mercy. What if God had just taken his hand off and let them never have any word about who God was or his holiness? His heavy hand of God was to bring them to repentance. The men who did not die, verse 12, were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. So, the second answer to the question, who can stand before God, we're coming to, is not just, not just idols, but also not 
irreligious people, right? So, so, so irreligious people, you know, these secular pagans, you'd say, they can't stand before a holy God. And by the way, you're not, um, you're not able to, to not cast a vote. Uh, what do you do with a God who, the Bible says his glory, you know, in Isaiah 6, fills the whole temple, which in the, in the new heaven, new earth, fills everything. Um, you can't, you know how an election, if you like this candidate, you vote for this candidate. If you like this candidate, you vote for this candidate. If you don't like either one, technically you can do what's called abstain. And when you abstain, it means I'm not voting for either one. Can I tell you something? When it comes to the true and living God, your life is the ballot you cast either yes for the living God or no against him in total rebellion and hatred. And no one gets to abstain. No one gets to abstain. In fact, there's people who beg at the end of time to just abstain. They don't want to say yes to God. They don't want to say no. They just don't want to make that they want to abstain. Jesus calls them out in Luke, and then later in Revelation, John sees it in the future. He says, there will be that day when people will cry, let the mountains cover us. Literally, I'd rather have a mountain fall on me because I can't stand to be in the presence of God. I can't stand. I'll be crushed if I'm in the presence of God as a rebel, and I don't want to be welcomed in as a child of God. I don't want God as my father, and I don't. I guess I don't want him in as my enemy. There's nowhere to go. That's the point when he cry out, let the mountains and the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne from the wrath of the lamb. Wrath of the lamb? How could a lamb be wrathful? We know him. The reason you ask that is because you know him as the savior. But to those who reject him, judge. So irreligious people cannot stand. You can't be neutral. So idols can't stand before the holy God. Irreligious people can't stand before the holy God. And I want to get to the third one, but along the way, I, I, I can't help it. We ha- you have to see how they send this thing back to Israel. The ark of the Lord, chapter 6, was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners. <laughs> they do the best they can. They call ghostbusters. And said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. Now, interesting, their instincts. In one sense, they reveal the insight of these pagan priests. In another sense, they reveal ignorance. They said, well, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means, return him a guilt offering. Then you'll be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. That's pretty good insight. Atonement must be made for guilt. The question they ask is even better, verse 4. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? What indeed? By the way, let me pause there. Who can stand before a holy God? What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? Can't you see how every page of the Old Testament whispers the name of Jesus? Can't you see that? I, I hear, sometimes I hear songs when I'm reading uh, the, the text, studying hymns come to mind. And you read this, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? You know what plays in my mind? What can wash away my sin? What? What is it? What is, what? okay, so we've offended a holy God. With what guilt offering shall we return? It's not a bad question, but the answer they give sounds weird at first, but I'll give them credit. At least they were thinking. All right, so they answered. Here, here's how we're going to make atonement. <clears throat> Five golden tumors. It's ridiculous. And five golden mice. See, apparently the rats were spreading the plague. According to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and your lords. They're making stuff up. They're doing the best they can. So you must make images of your tumors. 
<laughs> and I don't know, I mean, who's the model for that? Like you have an open casting call or something? Perhaps, <laughs> and the mice that ravage the land. Give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he'll lighten his hand from you, from off you and your God's and your land. I mean, this is ridiculous on so many levels. For one thing, they're still polytheistic. See, they say, ask Yahweh to lighten his hand from off of you and your gods. What? Yeah, ask Yahweh to lighten up on these other gods. Anyway, mice are literally listed among the detestable unclean animals in the Torah, forbidden to be used for offerings, so I don't think that's going to be good. Golden tumors, gross. I don't, you know, I, I will say, though, I did think of this. Vacation Bible school starts next week, not this week, but coming week. And I thought if, uh, sort of as a pro tip to any children, if you're like me and you weren't very good at craft time, when the time for Play-Doh came and you made something and you never got it right and it was terrible, and the teacher came and said, what is that? You can just say, I've made a golden tumor. It's from 1 Samuel chapter 6, and uh, it's, it's biblical, and uh, there you have it. So uh, you're welcome, kids. I'm here to help. And <laughs> but as ridiculous as all this is, I'll give them credit for this. One, they realized it had to be costly, right, gold. And two, it needed to somehow correspond in some way to the punishment they were receiving. Now, for all that zaniness, for all that weirdness, you got to give them credit that one, the offering had to be costly, and two, it had to in some way correspond to the punishment that they were receiving. Doesn't your mind, again, go to the cross of Jesus Christ? His atonement on the cross was costly, and our sins were laid upon him. There's a sense in which his death on the cross, well, it's not a sense, his death on the cross did correspond. It was our suffering and shame that he bore. At any rate, there was probably some pushback. People saying, hey, that's a lot of gold. And do we really want to give that back to the people that, hello, we just defeated. People lost their lives to defeat these Israelites. Now we're going to give them all this. But the priest said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? As he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? I mean, they know a lot about Bible for being pagans. Anyway, the next part is, of course, a way to stack the deck in their favor. This is a master stroke. How are you going to give this back? Um, The ark is too hot to handle. They don't want to be anywhere near it. They also still want to allow for the fact it may just be coincidence that we got these tumors when the ark came to town. We don't know. So let's do this. Let's do this. And we certainly don't want to offend if they're really, and they, they believed Yahweh was real and they had somehow offended him. So what's a way you could like, and, and, and deep down, they really don't want to give an offering back that the Israelites are going to benefit from. So with all that in mind, what is a plan that you could like act like you were returning the ark and not offend God, but not have to give it actually back? It's brilliant. This is what they say. Let's do this. Verse seven, take, now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart. They say, well, milk cows can't pull. That's for oxen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then do this. Take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord, place it on the cart, put and put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you're returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. Now, obviously, the deck is stacked. What would happen? If these are milk cows who need to nurse their baby calves, and the calves are over here, and they've never pulled anything before, we all know what's going to happen. They're going to go right back to the calves. So here's what they say. If it, I, I, listen, I've never worked on a dairy farm, and I can see this is not a fair fight, right? 
If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, yeah, that's what they're going to do. Miles away, they're going to go to some foreign land. Then that has to be God. It is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, we shall know it's not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. This way they can say, see, Yahweh, we tried to appease you. You obviously didn't want him. And of course, if it works, then, well, there's your answer. But obviously, it's not going to work. You can see the Philistine lords following them. This is, watch, hey, watch this. They're going to go 50 feet. They're not even going to get 50 feet. They're going to turn back. as soon. As, every mama, you know, th- these animals, they have instincts. They know. They got to get back to their calves. Every natural instinct would be, so if it didn't, it would, well, it would take an act of God. So the, the men did so, took two milk cows, yoked them to the cart, shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and their box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went, sh- what? And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, straight as an arrow, lowing as they went. Incredible. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh humiliated. Can you imagine these kings of the Philistines following milk cows? They're going to turn around. They have to turn around. And there they are. And they're lowing the whole way because they know their calves are back there. They need to be back there. But something, mm, someone is driving them on. There's so much richness here that the author's telling us. He's telling us that these cows pay better attention to Yahweh than the people do. The cows are more obedient to God. Holy cows. (laughs) that's utterly unacceptable at this point I'm just milking the story for all it's worth Isaiah 1-3 says the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib you got the lords of the Philistines who don't get it you got the Israelites who don't get it and these cows get it so obviously that leaves no doubt verse 13 the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark they rejoiced to see it the ark came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh stopped there a great stone was there they split up the wood of the cart offered the cows as burnt offering to the Lord and the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it in which were the golden figures set them upon the great stone and the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offering sacrifice sacrifices on that day to the Lord and when the five lords of the Philistines saw it they returned that day to Ekron so you've got the ark returned this signal this 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 great sacrifice the Philistines leave no doubt okay we're we're good right you've got it back you've made the sacrifice it's clear uh, handoff secured okay and that folks that right there is what's so crazy about this passage that's where the story should end if we were writing it, I think. That's where the story should end. Who can stand before a holy God? Not idols. Who can stand before a holy God? Not irreligious people. So after all these funny stories and all this incredible victory of God, that's why the reader is shocked by the ending. Look at verse 19. It's great. They're all gathered around the ark. Some of them apparently decided to just go ahead and look in. Oh, it's this curiosity. Let's make it a tourist attraction. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? To whom shall he go up away from us? The Israelites were no different than Ashdod, Gath, and Ekron. What city can we move him on to? We don't want God either. 
Who can stand before a holy God? I think we're shocked by this because we go, wait a minute. These are, these, are, these are God's people. That's right. And that's why they should know better. Numbers 4.20, right there in their law, says, but they shall not go in to look on the holy things even for a moment. The Ark of the Covenant. Why? Lest they die. So God in his holiness was trying to protect them. The Levites were supposed to cover the Ark of God. But still we're shocked because we think, yeah, that's for other people. Irreligious people, secular people. But here you have the religious people. And even the religious people ask, then the men of Beth Shemesh, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, to whom shall he go up from us? Not idols, we have to say. Not irreligious people. But to answer the question, who can stand before a holy God? Apparently not religious people either. So apparently growing up in church and knowing all the right things to say, apparently that can't make you right with God either. See, the gospel is incredible. It says, it says there's none righteous, no, not one. It's like Paul in Romans 3 was saying, look, if you're a Bible-believing, religious, moral person, or if you are absolutely licentious, immoral, pagan, you are, listen to me, both equally in need of the grace of God. None is righteous, no, not one. The ark, in a sense, I'll bring this to a close, is an Old Testament version of the gospel. Do you notice the ark smites the pagans, it smites the, well, God smites the Philistines, but also the quote-unquote good religious people. You know, if you go into the history of philosophy, I read Tim Keller always quoting uh, uh, Nietzsche, and he writes this book on the genealogy of morals. And he says, yeah, basically he says, yeah, these people over here who are telling the truth and not committing adultery and not killing, there's these people who are obeying the Ten Commandments. And over here you got these people who are not obeying the Ten Commandments. But why, he asks, why are the moral people moral? Answer, generally and usually for immoral reasons. In other words, he's saying, why are the good, quote-unquote, good people good? Because they're trying to get power over God so that God owes them. They're trying to get power over other people so they can say, see, I'm one of the good people. I think Nietzsche is absolutely right. The Bible says it, the New, New Testament, Old Testament. You, you can't really make this big distinction between the, quote-unquote, good people and the, quote-unquote, bad people. Why? Because, quote-unquote, bad people are trying to be their own lords and masters by breaking the rules. And, quote-unquote, good people are still just trying to be their own lords and masters just by keeping the rules. Good people, quote unquote, are saying, since I have done this and this and this, God has to take me to heaven. Well, if that's true, you're your own savior. God owes me these things, you think. You're still trying to get control over God. You're trying to manage him. There's no difference. That's what the ark is saying. There's a radical chasm between the holiness of God and people. And apparently, idols can't cross it, but we knew that. And irreligious people can't cross it, and we knew that. But apparently, your good deeds can't cross it. That's what's shocking. So who can stand before this holy God? Chuck's going to come and lead us in a time of invitation. Who can stand? Let me ask you. Who can stand? How can you get close to this God whose holiness is such that these people are struck down? How can you get to the saving presence of God without being burned up? The answer, of course, we know. The good news of the gospel is that when we could not atone for sin, whether it's golden tumors and mice or good deeds, when we could not cross that chasm, when we had nothing to offer a holy God, there was no sacrifice that was ever going to be acceptable to a holy God, we're still left with what can wash away my sin. With all that being the case, God did something. God himself acted. God himself provided a sacrifice.
God himself provided a lamb. (laughs) Even the Ark of the Covenant, underneath the law, right? The law's in the Ark, but over the law is what? Sprinkled with the sacrifice, the mercy seat. Sacrifice is what allows a human being to get close to God, to draw near to God. And there, on Calvary's cross, which I believe this really strange section of Old Testament narrative is meant to point us like a laser beam focus on the cross of Jesus Christ. There on the cross, you see the holiness of God and the love for us. There they meet the love of God and the holiness of God without contradiction. Jesus is the answer. It's not religious people or irreligious people. It's saved people. It's gospel people that can stand before the Lord. It struck me, I wrote in the margin of my Bible on that verse, the only refuge from God is in God. It's not let the mountains fall on us, let the hills cover us. No, there's nowhere to escape his glory. There's nowhere to escape his presence. But in his arms, he loves you. The mercy seat. That's why the book of Hebrews says, behind the curtain was the most holy place, which had the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant, and only the high priest entered the inner room, and only that once a year, and never without blood. But when Christ came as high priest, he did not enter by means of blood and goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. And by that, we will have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Christ. It's Christ's work on the cross that allows us to not only stand, but to run into the arms of this holy God. Let's pray. God, grant to us a fresh love of the gospel. Grant to us a fresh passion to serve you and to know you. Forgive us when we act like idolaters. We know better. We who know better. And God, grant to us strength and joy that comes from stories like this that even little children can look at and see that It's very clear you are powerful and you are strong and there is no other gods but you. Grant to us that we would have the good sense never to take refuge in anyone or anything as a savior, but you, you alone. We ask you to grant us this in the matchless name of Jesus, amen.